as we press through Romans chapter 11, where we have been for the past couple of weeks, last week we saw that God is, has a plan for history, which is a good thing to know. Uh, just to sum it up, what God is doing in history is, first of all, the Jews have rejected Christ, their Messiah, and God has partially rejected them. And then uh, salvation has come to us Gentiles who are non-Jews. And then the fullness of the Gentiles is coming in. So the full number that God is going to save of, of Gentiles are, are coming in to uh, saving faith with Christ. And then all the Jews who are going to be saved are going to be saved in a full measure. There's going to be a massive turning of Jews to, to, to the Savior, to Jesus Christ. And then, and leaving out a whole lot of other details, there's going to be a resurrection. We're all going to get new bodies and be fitted for the new heavens and new earth. So, yes, that's what we're here for. The problem that we're in right now is Gentiles are being saved is that there's a, a temptation for Gentiles to get proud, to think that now they're God's favored people so that they become arrogant. Pride is an inflated view of one's ability and worth. It produces a false sense of self-trust. As the saying goes, pride goes, comes before the fall, and that's a shortened version of an actual proverb from the Scriptures, Proverbs 16, 18. God says he hates pride and arrogance. He just hates it. It's a denial of our dependence on God. It denies that we live by God's kindness and that he is worth trusting. It denies that apart from his kindness and grace, we deserve only his severity. That is his judgment. Today we'll see how dangerous arrogance can be to our faith. So are you ready for that? Are you excited? Great. Stand up. Let's read from the Scripture. From Romans chapter 11, verses 16 to 24. And it starts out with kind of an unusual verse. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? 
Father, we need your help. We need your help in understanding what you're saying, what you want us to get from this text for our faith, for our life and godliness, for our, our life in Jesus. So by your Spirit, help us to see the truth you want us to see and to take it to heart. Help me to make it clear, Father. Give me grace in speaking your word. In Christ's name we ask. Amen. Please be seated. So, why, why is Paul, so in the middle of where we left off last week, why is Paul so certain of great hope for Israel's future, given that they have rejected their Messiah and, uh, and their Savior, and God's partial rejection of them? Why is Paul so certain that there's a good future for them? Why is he so certain of their salvation? Well, this is what he's talking about in this text about the dough and, and the, 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 the root. So what he's saying in verse 16 is the dough, what the dough is, is the dough is offered as first fruits, first devoted to God, represents Israel's fathers, their, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the promise made to them uh, that they would be a blessing and God would bless them. So that's what the, the dough offered as fruit, first fruits is. The whole lump of dough represents Israel. And the first fruits of the dough being holy, making the whole lump holy, means that Israel is set apart for God's saving blessings through the promise to Abraham. So that's what that's talking about. And the similar uh, truth is, is taught by, by the root and the branches. So the, the root and the branches restates the same idea. Israel still exists as a nation God cares for, and he will, be, he will yet bring about a great salvation because the root is holy, so the fathers, so, and so are the branches. That is because of God's promised blessings to Abraham and his descendants, Israelites have a future hope of salvation. And, and what we get from that is God always keeps his promises. You can take to the bank, you can take the scriptures to heart, God's promise always is fulfilled. He's going to make good on his people of Israel, even though right now it doesn't look good for them. As it says in verse 17, but as some of the branches are broken off. So I'll just stop there. Some of the branches were broken off from the olive tree. What is the olive tree? The olive tree is the people of God, God's people. So if some of the Israelite branches were broken off from being part of the people of God, you as a Gentile, wild olive shoot and wild olive trees bear lots of fruit, but it's not anything you want to eat. So that was our heritage. Inedible. God just spit it out. But he had grace upon us and he grafted us in among the, the, the true olive tree, God's people. The only reason you as a Gentile share in the promised blessing to Abraham, now fulfilled in Christ, is because... God included you in his people by grace. And he says, so don't be arrogant toward those who have been excluded or rejected. There is nothing, nothing uglier than religious pride, is there? It's the ugliest, yuckiest kind of pride. Sometimes those who were once not the privileged group can develop an uglier pride when they think they are now the privileged ones. Maybe you've seen this at, at work or in circles that you run in where someone had kind of a, they were under other people, they were 
had a lower position for whatever that was, and then they get promoted, and then they become very proud. It's kind of an ugly thing to experience. And unfortunately, church history is littered with examples of, 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 of pride, people who were left out of the in-group and became exalted, and they became very proud. And that includes uh, persecuting the Jews by Christians over the centuries, by, by professing Christians. So what, what uh, Paul says in the latter part of verse 18 is if you are, if you are what? If you are arrogant, so this is 18b, the screen. If you are arrogant, the truth is you don't, you don't sustain the root. You don't supply what the root needs to live. The root, God's promise of life through Abraham fulfilled in Christ. So that's the root, God's promise to Abraham through Christ. Supplies what you need to live. Paul has made it really clear that mere physical descent from Abraham doesn't save anyone. But only those who become spiritual descendants of Abraham are saved by faith in Christ. So don't be arrogant. Don't be proud as to think you have favor with God on your own terms. Don't think, you Gentile, that you have replaced Israel as God's people. You've only been graciously included. You've been added in with God's people through Abraham's great, great offspring, Jesus Christ. Then in verse 19, Paul says, then you will say, suppose you, you say this as a Gentile believer in Christ, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, you're, you're, you're saying or you're thinking Israelites were excluded from being God's people so I might be included. And then in verse 20, he says that that is true. There is truth in what, what you're saying there. And God's plan of redemption has involved the partial hardening of Israel, of Israelites, until the, the full number of Gentiles are included as God's people. He talks about that in verses 25 and 26. But don't forget, Israelites were excluded because of their unbelief. That's why they were excluded. Because they didn't believe God's promise to Abraham as it was fulfilled in Christ. But you stand fast in God's saving promise of being included in God's people through faith. So that's the only reason you stand among God's people is because you've trusted in Christ. So don't, don't you think arrogant thoughts, literally he says. Don't think highly of yourself. Instead, be fearful that it could happen to you. In other words, saving faith and pride are polar opposites. It's just the ugliest thing in the world for Christians in name to be proud and arrogant. Saving faith is the recognition that the only way God accepts me is if I am united to Jesus Christ so that I receive his righteousness in place of my sin and life from him instead of my spiritual deadness. The only way I am included among God's people is through faith in Jesus. I only stand fast through faith. That's all I have going for me. That's a lot going for me, but it's all I have is faith in Christ. If Paul says in another place, therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. A person who has true saving faith in Christ will not say or think, I have quite a, a resume of good deeds. I'm, I'm a real asset to God's team. I'm good with God. I go to church sometimes. In fact, I'm better than most people I know. That's not what you think if, you're, if you have the grace of Christ in your life. 
we should never give unbelievers the impression that we think that we that we think we are superior to them. And we ought not to actually think that. And Paul will explain further why arrogant Gentiles should not be arrogant in verse 21. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. In other words, don't be arrogant thinking that because God is majoring on saving Gentiles in the present, that you can presume on God's grace. Don't assume that just because you are part of the people of God that you are in, regardless of whether you continue in faith. Some of the Roman church members were in danger of, of the very mindset that so many of the, of the Israelites had that kept them from believing and, and thus from being saved. The Jews thought that by being descended from Abraham and by possessing the law, they were right with God. They thought that in themselves, they thought that in themselves they were superior to the Gentiles. And because of this attitude, they rejected the message that they could only be saved by faith in Christ. God did not spare them from being excluded from his people. And he won't spare Gentiles from exclusion if they have the same attitude that they are in themselves God's favored people and thus don't continue in faith in Christ. He talks more about this in verse 22. He says, Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Consider God's kindness and his severity. God's, God's harshness. He's kind, but he has a tough side. Literally, he is saying to look at God's kindness and severity. We see God's severity toward those Israelites who, who have fallen, he says. God has excluded them from being his people. Even though they had God's law, they had his covenants, they had his worship, they were descendants of Abraham, they, they were people uh, from whom the Messiah would come, now God's judgment awaits them. The Gentile believers had experienced God's kindness in saving them and including them as part of his people. They were included with God's people by God's grace through faith in Christ. But if you presume on God's kindness and grace and don't continue in humble faith in Christ and instead trust in your own rightness and goodness, you won't continue in, in his kindness. You too will be cut off and you will be excluded from his people and face God's final judgment. So what do we make of this? Do Paul's words about standing in faith to continue in God's kindness or else be cut off mean that a true believer in Christ might quit believing and not be saved in the end? My first response to this kind of question is, is that the scriptures teach that we are saved through a faith that continues. We're saved through a faith that perseveres till the end. We are not saved through a faith that doesn't persevere. That makes sense, doesn't it? We're saved by faith, and we're saved not by a flash-in-the-pan faith, by a temporary faith. We're saved by a faith that continues. This doesn't mean we're saved by a perfect faith, because otherwise none of us are saved, because we don't have it. We're not saved by a faith that never has struggles because we all have struggles with our faith or lapses. It means we are saved through a persevering faith, not a perfect faith, but a persevering faith. 
that returns when it lapses, that reignites when it sputters, that keeps hanging on because Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. If you give up on something you once trusted in and hoped for, it's because you decided it wasn't worth it. How many of you have quit something because you decided it wasn't worth it? We've all given up on something because we didn't feel it was worth pursuing. Or you put your trust in something or someone else. Are you being tempted to give up on Jesus because you don't think he's worth it? He's worth trusting? What are you being tempted to to trust in, to hope in, or value more than Jesus that would take his place as your functional Savior? What seems to be a better Savior to you than Jesus? What's more life-giving to you than Jesus? Let's look at some verses that say we are saved now if we persevere in faith to the end. I should have this up there. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, so you stand in the gospel, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. So Paul's saying, you stand in, in the gospel, you are being saved by the gospel, if you hold fast to it, and but if you have vain faith, you might not be saved. You will not be saved. Or Colossians 1, 21-23, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled. So he has reconciled you now, in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So Christ has now reconciled you if you continue in faith, stable and steadfast. So it's true of you now if you continue to the end. It's true of you now if you continue to the end. And one more. Hebrews 3.14 For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if we don't hold fast faith to the end, we are not saved now. So saving faith endures. It lasts. It continues to to the end of your life. So we must persevere in faith in Christ to be saved, to be included with God's people. But this leaves us with the question, if we must persevere in faith to be saved, is it possible that we may not continue in faith and be excluded from God's people? Might those whom God has made right with himself through faith in Christ actually lose that, their right standing? May the justified become unjustified? Does it mean that a born-again person who has been given new life in Christ can lose that life? Can a person who has been given eternal life forfeit that life? Well, let's look at a few verses that talk about that. Philippians 1, chapter 6, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul says, I'm sure of this. Great, Paul, what are you sure of? I'm sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. So if Christ began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. 
or 1 Corinthians 1.8, the Lord Jesus Christ will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus will sustain you all the way to the end of your days, and he will bring you guiltless, forgiven, standing right before him. He's going to see to it that that happens. He's going to sustain you. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at this Romans 8.30. And those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's no fallout. If God justified you, you're, you're glorified. But it hasn't happened yet. But it's so certain, he says, it's, our, it's as good as done. So it's true that we must persevere in faith to be saved. And at the same time, it is true that God is at work to keep you in saving faith. It's so certain that if, if God has justified you through faith in Christ, He's counted you right with Him, that you will be saved in the end, that Paul says, if you're justified, you are glorified, even though it hasn't happened yet. Your final salvation is already settled. So, so why does Paul warn us that if you don't stand fast through faith and continue in His kindness, you'll be cut off from His people? Well, it's because God really does design that we fight the fight of faith. God really does design for us to, to battle for our faith based upon both His kindness and His severity as He reveals in His promises and warnings. He says we note, we, we look at God's kindness in saving us by grace, in uniting us to Jesus, in giving us His Spirit to empower us to kill sin and unbelief and, and pride. He's given us, He's united you to the Savior of the universe, to the King of kings and Lord of lords. And He's given us, He's given you His Holy Spirit, who is a great sin killer and a great faith sustainer. And He's able to kill the sin of pride, which is the source of unbelief. Because when you're proud, you don't trust in Christ. You trust in other things. You trust in yourself. We consider his kindness in not leaving us in condemnation, alienation, and enslavement to sin, bound for eternal death, guaranteeing us eternal life in the new, in new immortal bodies. He has destroyed our condemnation. He has made us right in his sight. In this way, considering God's kindness fuels and sustains our faith in Christ. And we do this in community with God's people. That's what Sherry and, and Greg were talking about. We, we need one another. We don't just check in with God and then we go on our own. It's dangerous. It says in, in Hebrews chapter 3 that we're to exhort or encourage one another every day. Every day we need encouragement. Why? Lest any of you be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. In one day, I can come under the hardening of sin's deceitfulness pretty easily. And I need you to encourage me. I need you to exhort me not to, go, not to be deceived by sin, not to be hardened. So will you do that? The Bible says to do. So I need you to all line up after the service and come tell me to not be deceived by sin. And pray for me. But if you don't have time to do it, then I guess you just don't care very much, do you? Because there's good food out there to eat in the foyer, I know. At the same time, we consider God's severity. God didn't spare the Jews who didn't believe the good news about Jesus the Messiah. 
He cut them off from being his people. And if we don't continue in his kindness by persevering in faith, he will cut us off too. That's what he says. So yes, God will keep us in saving faith by his grace, but he uses his promises and warnings, revealing both his kindness and severity to nurture our faith, to call us back to faith when we are falling into pride, temptation, and unbelief. I don't trust myself. I don't trust that in myself I have what it takes to persevere in faith in Christ. I know I don't. I don't have it in me. I take the warnings seriously, and I don't assume they don't apply to me. Yet I, I put my faith and confidence in God's kindness to me in Christ. I'm, I'm a grace addict. I don't know about you, but I, I, I need to mainline grace. I need to constantly need God's grace to keep me, to hold me. I pray, I trust in his word and participate in the life and ministry of his people, knowing he works his grace through these means to keep my faith rooted, alive, renewed, and growing. I see trials as one of God's tools for training me not to rely on myself but to trust in him. What are you going through right now that's tempting you to not trust in Christ? I could take having Parkinson's disease as, as a re- reason for not trusting Christ. But by his grace, he's using it as an instrument to, to cause me to be more deeply dependent upon him. To realize how much I need him, not just to deal with Parkinson's, but for every area of my life. To sustain me in his grace. He says in verse 23, And even they, the Israelites, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. God has the power to graft them in again. In Paul's metaphor of the olive tree, God will graft the Israelites who don't continue in their unbelief into graft back into being his people. God is able and willing to include them again as his people. And as he says in verse 24, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature to a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If you Gentile believers were cut off from a wild olive tree from those who were not God's people and were grafted into the cultivated olive tree included with God's people, how much more will the Israelites be included with what they were by nature, that is by God's promise to Abraham? So that's what made them inheritors of the promise by nature, not genetically, but by God's promise that they were um, committed to receiving salvation. If someone was raised up under the gospel and since rejected the gospel, how much more might they return and be be included? Maybe you've known people who have just chucked their faith, have turned their back on Christ, have just walked away from the faith. And there are people who were brought up in the church, uh, in a Christian home or under the teaching of the gospel. And how much more will God be willing to how fitting it is to, to re-graft them into the faith that they, that they turned their back on. Don't think that God has replaced or displaced Israel. True, there is only one olive tree. There's only one people of God. 
the Gentile believers in Christ haven't taken over the people of God. They are included with what was originally a Jewish olive tree. Even though only a small remnant of Jews have believed in Jesus as Messiah, how much more fitting is it that God should include the original people of promise as God's saved people? Even though unbelieving Israelites are not included with God's true people, God still does care for them and has a plan to save a great mass of them when the fullness of Gentiles comes in. Again, we'll see that in verses 25 through 26. There's one more takeaway from this, one more that I'm going to mention. And that is, there's no place for anti-Semitism. You say, Amen. What's, what's anti-Semitism? It's hatred of or scorning of the Jewish people. Not only should we not be anti-Semitic, we should be for the, the Jewish people. We should be for Israel. This doesn't mean everything the political entity of Israel does is right under this current age, but they do have a right to exist as a nation. We should care for unbelieving Israelites as God still does and pray that they would be saved. We should support and encourage evangelistic ministry to the Jews. I'm excited to see how God's going to do this. I'm really eager to see how he's going to fulfill his plan to save all Israel. And I'm grateful to be grafted into God's olive tree, joined with the Messianic Jewish believers, delivered from God's severity and judgment, sharing in God's kindness in Jesus Christ as his people. Father, we are humbled by your severity. You're not just an indulgent grandfather God who just says boys will be boys and, and just doesn't deal with sin. You're so good and you're so kind and you're so holy and you're so just that you set your mercy upon us in Christ, judging our sins in Christ so that we didn't have to experience your judgment, your severity. And in the amazing way that you're working out history, Father, you even used the, the disbelief of your first people, Israel, as an opportunity for us to be saved, to receive the gospel of the grace of Christ. Father, I pray for each of us here today that we would consider your kindness and severity. We would consider how massively great your holiness is and how much sin deserves to be punished. And yet how infinitely great your kindness is and how you have delivered us from your judgment and granted us your grace and made us your people forever. Joining us together, Father, with the remnant of, of those who are your people of Israel who are, believing in, who are believing in the Messiah, longing for that day when they'll be fully saved, when all Israel will be saved. We pray that that comes soon. Thank you, Father, for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.